Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Howard Davis was very sorry that he couldn't be here tonight. So will you be, because his jokes are so much better than mine ever would be. Now, the last conference that I was at, there was a session entitled What Can Central Bankers Learn from Academic Economists and Vice Versa? To which actually the answer was not much. And the reason for that was that the best central bankers are the best academic economists. And uh, Axel Weber is one of this overlapping group of really good economists who are also really good central bankers, which now that group now also includes Athanasios Ophinides in Cyprus, Lars Fenson in Sweden, as well as, as you know, Mervyn King, Ben Bernanke, Stan Fisher, and Lucas Papadimos, uh, just to name a few, and there are probably quite a lot that I've overlooked as well. Now, Axel has had an eminent career as a professional economist in Germany, including being director of the Center for Financial Studies in Frankfurt, which I like to regard as a sister organization of our financial markets group here, and he was a member of the German Council of Economic Experts before being appointed, and a very widely welcomed appointment, as president of the Deutsche Bundesbank since April 2004. Tonight he's going to be speaking to us on financial market stability, and after he speaks he's agreed to answer questions. And so without any further ado, Axel, may I welcome you uh, to present your paper. Thank you very much. Thank you for the kind words of introduction, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here in London at the uh, LSE. I remember being here before in previous positions, and I always enjoyed coming to London. I see a few friends in the audience uh, that I visited at that time, and I have fond memories of the time when I was in London and in the UK. I spent some time at Queen Mary College here uh, and worked intensively with the Center for Economic Policy Research, so I'm no stranger to London. Uh, as you probably hear from my accent, uh, I have one big advantage in coming to the UK. My wife is British, so I'm pretty familiar with uh, the uh, recent developments here. At least I'm trying to keep up. So, again, thanks for the invitation to come here. I will, and Charles mentioned it, a paper. I, I don't consider it a paper. Paper has different structures. Uh, it's uh, on very focused topics. It's more a speech. It's a speech on recent developments. And I would like to start uh, basically outlining that I will not talk about the entire uh, speech that is there. I have a section in the end which I will skip. It's on the interaction and interrelation between monetary policy, in particular monetary policy transmission, and financial stability or financial evolution. And I think that's an important part as we're coming to realize. And I would skip that because... Uh, I think it would be more interesting being here to leave some time for a longer Q&A. So I'll try and be somewhere in between half an hour, uh, which is uh, the usual time uh, span that you can have the attention of an audience like this at 45 minutes. It's usually only trained students that are, are used to listening that long, and I wouldn't like to stretch to that limit. So let me start by saying that it shouldn't be a surprise that central banks uh, in their strive for macroeconomic stability always have a key eye 
for the developments in financial markets and an interest in preserving financial stability. In my view, monetary policy and price stability and financial stability on the other side is almost a twin mandate. And you can see that, actually, if you look at all the central banks around the world. The abundance of published financial stability reports over the recent past decade is indicating that the respective resources invested by central banks nowadays in monitoring financial stability and drawing conclusions on financial developments for financial stability uh, has hugely increased. It would, in my view, not have needed the most recent financial turbulence uh, in the last summer to drive home that message. I think that message was already pretty clear, but, however, events since last August have made it even more clearer to distant observers that central banks have a key and natural interest in financial stability and also a responsibility in safeguarding developments on financial markets. You can understand that better if you look at a few phrases that were not common knowledge or basically part of, 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 of language of us all more than nine months ago. Triple A, ABCP, ABS, CDOs, CDS, SVPs, SIVs. The fact that most of you in the audience probably now know what these, what these expressions mean means that they have actually reached out far beyond the experts that usually deal with them. Until very recently, nobody knew what these abbreviations stood for. Very recently, you can see them even in a standard local paper. This shows how the last 10 months almost now have radically changed the landscape. I think if you look at the interest of central banks in financial stability, much the same can be said for a different part of our operations, namely our regular recurring refinancing operations, for example, in the euro system, uh, through which we refinance commercial banks uh, and supply them with central bank money. I used to call this the engine room of monetary policy, and nobody was interested in the engine room, but very recently this came to the front of uh, the newspapers, and there is now also widespread interest in those aspects. While interest rate decisions often receive public attention, we just noticed that yesterday, monetary operations have far less been in the limelight. They're viewed purely as a technical matter, which they are not, and they have rarely been conveyed in the financial press, which they now are. In the meanwhile, however, as I said, this has changed. In my following remarks, I will focus on a number of issues in the interaction of financial markets, financial stability, and monetary policy. First, I would like to look at and explain the meaning and the importance of financial stability for central banks. I think this is a good starting point, but it will be very general remarks. Then I will briefly describe the causes of the recent turmoil, in my view, at least what the turmoil, what the cause of this turmoil was, and uh, some of the lessons learned. Now, we're still in a learning process, but I think there can be some interim conclusions already. Certainly, I would like to say something in more detail about the liquidity operations that we have been engaged in. And if you hear that there has been some praise for central banks in their reaction to the financial crisis, the liquidity operations of the central bank stood at the core uh, of that uh, discussion. And in my view, and we had that discussion in Germany, it also made clear 
when it comes to push and shove over a financial turmoil, the weaponry of central banks in dealing with financial stress goes far beyond the ammunition that supervising agencies of banks have. So, in my view, they are a clear indication that central banks need to and should be involved in banking supervision and also in financial stability monitoring. And I'll try and make that a bit more clear when we go along. I know it's a discussion also in this country. Now, the term financial stability describes a financial system's ability to efficiently allocate financial resources, to reliably assess and tackle risks, and to securely settle payments and security transactions. Now, as I said before, this engine room of monetary policy is not very much at the forefront of discussions, but I can tell you, if you include to settling transactions not just the non-cash payment, the click transaction, but also the cash transaction, this will be most of the stuff I employ in my central bank. Cash circulation, payment systems, banking supervision, monetary operations, all that usually is the bulk of the stuff we employ. Turning the interest rates crew only really requires a smaller amount of economists and economic department, but the bulk of our stuff is in these other areas. Now, a stable financial system, and this is very important, generally fulfills these functions not just in good times, but also in stress. And this is exactly where the stability issue comes in, to be able to fully fulfill these functions also in a period of strain. And in a way, financial stability, therefore, for me, means resilience to shocks in all these dimensions. So the term financial stability, when we talk about it, and that's another thing that should be made clear at the start, just to say what I mean, financial stability describes the functioning of the system as a whole. It doesn't focus on the skills or the functioning of individual market participants. To put it even more bluntly, from a financial stability point of view, the fate of individual institutions is of no interest whatsoever. It only is of interest to the system if any failure of such a single institution could negatively affect the system as a whole. And this has to be kept in mind. It is a judgment whenever you come to that decision uh, because it's not obvious. It's a decision that very frequently needs to be taken in real time without all the information you have exposed. And sometimes it's a close call. And I will talk about it later. We had some decisions in Germany that had to be taken over a weekend without full information. And you can see that if these decisions are later than discussed, uh, very often there are good reasons why even if a single institution is not in the focus. Financial stability has to focus at the issue of whether dealing with a single institution in stress, in distress, can have negative repercussions and huge costs to the system as a whole. Now, stable financial resistance in general should reduce uncertainty, and also from this point of view, there is an, an issue about alloc uh, allocation efficiency, namely 
they have positive external effects usually for the real economy, and that's why because of these positive external effects or potential negative external effects if there is a malfunctioning, a lot of these financial stability issues have been delegated to public institutions. Now, uh, if you look at the various aspects of financial stability for the euro system, in my view, as I said, it is a core responsibility of central banks. We should avoid negative repercussions. But at the same time, when we come to deal with financial stability issues, we have to make clear how we draw the line between monetary policy objectives and financial stability objectives. And I will get back to that later. We in the Eurosystem, pretty early on in the financial tension, made clear that dealing with stress in financial markets is something that we try and totally differentiate from the orientation of monetary policy, which is focused on price stability in the medium term. Now, let me talk about if you in general talk about these issues, it's pretty easy to derive clear positions in many dimensions based on theory. If you're talking about a real-time, real-world situation, the distinctions become more blurred. So let me talk about the recent subprime crisis, and we nowadays use the term crisis rather than turmoil because we saw it went way beyond turmoil. And... Let me also talk a bit about the causes, in my view, and the lessons learned. What are the causes of these tensions in financial markets that we've witnessed? Here, I am very skeptical, extremely skeptical, about usually advanced monocausal explanations. I don't think monocausal explanations really lead us to understand the phenomenon. Instead, I believe that it was a cocktail of various ingredients triggered by developments in the United States, but they were only the wake-up call, in my view, triggered by events that sent shockwaves through, through the financial system as a whole. Now, this cocktail, and that's the second argument, which had, in my view, individual ingredients that would have been able to be digested by the financial system if they came in isolation, the fact that they interacted in a very nonlinear and very dynamic way led to the fact that the actual cocktail, the mix, was much less digestible and led to severe and ongoing stress in the international financial system. And I think this is an important insight for us when we deal with this, uh, because when you are asked as a supervisor or somebody in charge of financial stability, didn't you see this coming? We, we understood a lot of the elements, but what we didn't expect was the sudden and brutal interaction of a lot of these dimensions. And to continue, let me focus on what I think are the main three ingredients. You can always find a lot more, but I would say there are three core ingredients that made the cocktail indigestible. The first one is lending standards. Lending standards have become much more lax and less risk-oriented, especially in the real estate sector of the United States. Weakness in credit risk transfer, especially in the originate and distribute model, was another cause. And third, overly optimistic assessment of structured securities. I think if you take these three together, you will 
understand a lot of the parts. So let me go into each of these three ingredients in a sort of very short way. The notion of obtaining a real estate loan with almost no capital and with only a pure or no credit rating at all, at least for us in Germany, is something that is quite strange. You may have heard the term ninja loans, no income, no job, no securities, no assets. Well, I think this is a popular expression now, but I think some of the underlying standards in real estate lending, when I compare them to the standards, for example, in the German economy, were vastly different, in particular in the subprime segment of that market. Now, it is very hard for those who are not players in that market to monitor the developments in these standards from the other side of the Atlantic, uh, in particular for those that are not real estate specialized institutions. And this is what brings me to a, the next point in a minute. In some countries, mortgage loans became a major feature of the real estate market for the last two or three years, uh, and these loans had features that I was just referring to. Now, let me move to the second feature, weakness in credit transfer. The, in my view, almost oblivious to risk approach of lending to debtors with low credit rating was fueled by two factors. First, huge house price increases that occurred previously led to the perception that this was an ongoing phenomenon and therefore you could lend against the future rise in the price of the house. Second, innovative financial instruments which permitted credit risk to be passed from the bank to yield-seeking non-bank investors was the second aspect. By securitizing and trenching, it appeared for a while to be possible to convey unstable individual loans to almost fail-safe securities. And we found out that this only worked for some time. It didn't work forever. Some observers called this financial chemistry. Uh, you mentioned the Council of Economic Experts. Uh, they, in their last uh, annual report, used the expression de pas to conclude. Uh, which explains a similar phenomenon. Uh, I think this was an important feature of the crisis. Not to be misunderstood, and this is important to say, and I always say that when I'm asked, in principle, the possibility of transferring credit risk increases the flexibility of financial market players, and it is a key element of modern risk management. And we should not forget that, and this is why we are warning that one of the lessons that we have to take is don't let us take quick shots at problems that we haven't yet fully worked through. Overregulation is a usual feature of the first regulatory response to a crisis, and I'm always warning to, to go down this avenue. However, the disruptions of the last few months have highlighted some major weaknesses, in my view, in this process. It has become clear that the tradability of fairly broad and fairly broad dispersion of credit risk, in particular, can actually improve the resilience of financial systems only if two conditions are fulfilled. First, a high-quality standard is maintained at all levels of the transfer process, and second, no new concentration risks arise. And I think the latter was a particular problem of what we've seen. When transferring credit risk, one must always bear in mind that the transferred risks themselves do not vanish into thin air. They are merely elsewhere, and there is a danger, and it remains, that they could resurface, possibly even in new concentrated form. 
It was precisely such new concentrations of, li- of risks that led to the distress of the past few months, threatening the existence of a number of financial institutions which were not themselves actually, as I said before, active player in the area of real estate, let alone in the United States. Overly optimistic assessment of structured securities. This is the third ingredient I mentioned. The previous 10 months have also shown that there is limitations to even professional ratings. The assumption held by many around the last uh, more than 12 months ago was that structured securities backed by mortgages provided a premium over government securities at a similar or uh, at a similar level of risk. This has turned out to be a major cross-misperception. The effects of the U.S. subprime crisis meant that for a period, a general crisis of confidence spread among financial market participants. This crisis of confidence also restricted the distribution of liquidity in the interbank money market, and this brought us as central banks that are not supervisors into the game. Now, let me briefly refer to one statement that I found surprising that when the financial press took it up, it was reflected uh, as a – well, at least it was reflected on page one of the FT, which I found uh, surprising at the time. Um, Last year in Jackson Hole, which was only a few weeks into the financial crisis, I mentioned the fact that what we're seeing there is, as all the hallmarks of a non-bank bank run. Uh, and it was actually not banks because the problem was that banks held these assets in non-bank structured investment vehicles, off balance sheet rather than on the balance sheet. But if you look at what happened there, it had all the classical features of a usual problem era, namely a very strong maturity mismatch between the asset side and the liability side of these SIVs. Long-term asset-backed securities, usually mortgage-backed securities, were held and refinanced by issuing short-term commercial paper in a market that turned out to be liquid for a long period of time, but it has since collapsed and basically liquidity has not come back uh, in the way it used to be. And this is a typical feature that we've seen in many financial crises like the Asian crisis. There was also a maturity mismatch uh, between lending uh, uh, long-term and basically refinancing short-term in international markets. At that time, we also had a currency mismatch because lending was done in domestic currencies and borrowing was done in foreign currencies against flexible exchange rate. And I think this was uh, the two features that that reminded me very much. Uh, We didn't have the the exchange rate mismatch, you could argue, but we had a lot of the other features. The second thing that was pretty clear for me was the major way to deal with this and it was likely that that market wouldn't come back, would be to place these investments outside, finance them to maturity, to basically insulate them from the valuations in the market. At least that was one possibility to deal with the problem. It was also clear for me that this will lead to a major deleveraging in the financial industry and that we as central banks need to aid that process of deleveraging. And I think this is what we've seen over the last few months, and we're still in the middle of that. So if you go back and and look at the underlying problem, the new and complex instruments to transfer credit risk in combination with a large engagement of uh, banks in the originate and distribute business models have amplified the consequences of uh, the excesses in the U.S. mortgage market. The new instruments 
exhibited several weaknesses that seriously hampered the efficient flow of information between originators and investors. At the end, the instrument of credit risk transfer in this particular subprime segment of the market did not contribute to a distribution of risk. Now, looking forward, a lot of effort by international uh, institutions and national institutions is being currently put together to identify the lessons and to identify potential reforms. Let me just say that in the international context, I find the proposals made by the Financial Stability Forum to be really going at the heart of the matter, also with some recent discussions we have in Baal in the Baal Committee. So they take important steps uh, that I think will help us deal with the problem. You may know that we had an interim report at the last G7 meeting uh, from my colleague Mario Draghi, the governor of the Banca d'Italia in Washington, and uh, there was a program for the first 100 days, immediate action to be taken. There were some more medium-term aspects uh, that we wanted to go back to, and I'm pretty sure that this will be the dominating topic at the next G7 meeting when we meet in Washington again in autumn. But we don't need to wait till then. A lot of the 100-day program is being implemented at this stage, and I think it's an important first step forward. Most of the reform proposals focus on supervisory, accounting, and risk management issues. We can briefly go into that in the Q&A. The core of these recommendations are uh, threefold. First, if necessary, increase capital requirements for structured vehicles. Second, clarification of outstanding questions regarding the valuation of these products in illiquid markets has to do with accounting standards, certain rules in the international accounting standards, fair value option. Third, examination of the methods, use, and role of rating agencies, including potential conflicts of interest of these institutions. And as I said, we, we can talk about this uh, and the various aspects of where I think we stand on that uh, in the Q&A. Now, the focus on these regulatory issues is certainly justified, but I like to focus a bit more on the core business where actually the turmoil interacts with the uh, behavior of central banks, and in particular, uh, this is relevant, I think, for those central banks that are not themselves part of a regulatory agency like we are uh, in Germany. You may know that we in Germany share the responsibility for banking supervision with BaFin, uh, the German regulatory authority. We're in charge of on-site inspection. They're in charge of prudential decisions uh, and report directly to the Ministry of Finance. Now, my remarks are more focused on the link between monetary policy and market developments. And I will concentrate in particular on the Eurosystem's liquidity operations in the face of the tensions in the interbank markets. And at one or two points, I will make a reference to similar action by the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve. Now, if you are a central banker, you understand pretty well, in particular since August 2007, that financial market turbulences have had a strong impact on the money market, not only in the euro area, but nearly as importantly in all currency areas of the world. Due to a rapid loss of confidence among banks, the distribution of central bank money on interbank money markets was distorted massively. Two cumulative effects were at work. On the one side, banks' willingness to lend decreased sharply due to increased counterparty risk, and on the other side, Banks' demand for short-term financing went up significantly due to two factors. 
First, involuntary reintermediation of former off-balance sheet activities, such as special investment vehicles uh, or conduits. And second, a higher degree of liquidity preference due to the mounting uncertainty about own future liquidity needs. The resulting increase in the spreads between money market rates and central bank interest rates complicates monetary policy for a number of reasons. First, the determination of the appropriate level of the central bank rates is aggravated, and second, the signaling function of these rates becomes more limited. To counteract these distortions in the money market, central banks all over the world took a wide range of different measures. Some central banks reacted earlier, other central banks reacted later, some central banks had to change their operational frameworks more strongly, others less so. Now, the euro system reacted relatively promptly, but left its toolbox of monetary policy instruments nearly unchanged, and I will explain that uh, in a few moments in time. The Bank of England stayed calm in the first turbulent phase, but implemented some more extensive changes in its conduct of monetary policy uh, after the tensions in the money market became more enduring and more severe than we all had previously expected. Now, it is important to say at this juncture that, of course, the framework for monetary policy operation very much depends on the initial conditions. And I think what has led the euro system to have a fairly flexible and wide operating framework when we started was two factors. One was we had to provide a framework that could encompass the divergent and different frameworks existing in the European Union. And second, we were the latest central bank that had its operating framework established of all the major central banks. It was just 10 years old, as you saw a few days ago when we celebrated our anniversary. And I think this led to the fact that we had a pretty broad set of collateral that we could use. We had a pretty broad uh, set of counterparties that we refinanced. Basically, all the banks in the euro area had access to our operations. And I think in the initial phase, this helped us without having to change our operating framework. Since the outbreak of the financial market turbulence, the euro system's conduct of operation has not changed in a major way. All modifications happened within the existing framework and without any change of the key interest rates. And let me just take you through the various stages of decisions that we've taken. Promptly after the financial market turmoil in August 2007, the euro system's sharply increased its temporary liquidity provisions to the banking sector. Now, I remember that this was at the 9th of August when money markets basically, as a tidal wave, froze up around the globe. And we had already before, since the occurrence of IKB Bank failure in Germany, had isolated feedback from some banks that they found money markets more tense and more and harder to access, in particular uh, in the relation, say, in, in the Asian markets for some of the German uh, banks because at that point in time, uh, and I remember vividly that this was also quoted in newspapers on this side of the uh, channel, uh, it appeared to be, at least by the tenor of some of the newspapers, a German problem. Uh, we all found out it wasn't, and I was from the start saying this is not a problem of uh, German banks. I was saying pretty clearly this is, was a problem of a smaller German bank that was overexposed in that market. 
But you had your own experience in this country afterwards, and I think since then the news of where this problem was located died out because uh, everybody understood it's a global problem. Now, since August 2007, we really sharply increased our uh, liquidity provision. The first operation we did was a flat tender, fine-tuning operation, allocating all the liquidity needed at our official rate. We then moved again to rate takers on the second day after the first round uh, of liquidity needs uh, was, uh, was satisfied. Uh, we announced that we would provide fine-tuning operations with mar money market conditions uh, at the point in time uh, that were relatively favorable. Um, we quickly restored confidence in the euro market through these measures, and we brought the overnight rate relatively quickly back to the minimum bid rate for the, our main refinancing operations. Since then, liquidity-providing fine-tuning operations have become largely unnecessary. We still do fine-tuning operations, but usually liquidity-absorbing fine-tuning operations, and I'll go into that later. However, despite a fostered liquidity provision at the beginning of the maintenance period, no additional liquidity has been provided on average because, as I said before, we withdrew the additional liquidity at the end of the maintenance period with liquidity-absorbing fine-tuning operations. In a, as a matter of fact, what we did was front-loading the reserve period. And this is an important thing that is very often in the press not sufficiently reflected. We haven't increased, neither we nor the UK nor the US have increased the overall amount of liquidity provided. What we've changed is the time pattern. We front-loaded the process to give banks more security in terms of liquidity planning over the maintenance period. Now, a third issue was we also did some changes to our framework. For example, uh, two weeks before the end of the year, uh, with a very specific allocation of banking holidays and Christmas, we conducted a two-week fine-tuning operations, so already from before Christmas to provide liquidity over the year-end. And later on, as we also continued uh, these operations, we collaborated with other central banks, uh, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, and the Swiss National Bank, in mid-December uh, to basically provide not just short-term liquidity, but also to provide dollar liquidity at this end of the market. Uh, we implemented this in conjunction with our U.S. colleagues in uh, the uh, term auction facility that they implemented. So you see there was not only collaboration between central bank, but it was close cooperation with dollar liquidity provided here on this side of the Atlantic by the major central banks before the U.S. markets opened. And I remember having talked to a lot of banks at that point in time uh, where we had the feeling that uh, offering such a facility uh, would both help early liquidity provision uh, in the, uh, on this side of the Atlantic and not forcing institutions to wait till the dollar window would open uh, sort of later on in the afternoon and then the concentrated demand on this side of the Atlantic for dollar liquidity would immediately impact on uh, the uh, U.S. rates uh, for some time till that demand was met. Now, we also moved by basically opening up a fan of maturities for uh, refinancing operations. You may know our main refinancing operation in the euro area is one week. Uh, 
We also have a three-month operation. We did supplementary three-month operation, and we started, uh, as of this year, to introduce a transitory uh, six-month operation. This six-month operation uh, is important, in my view, because it allows banks a more medium-term liquidity planning at this stage. And actually, I think you will see one of the benefits uh, on 9th of July, because this will be the first time that our six-month operation will already cover liquidity beyond the end of the year. Uh, and end-of-the-year effects are usually seen uh, in the markets because uh, in, in the context of banks putting together their balance sheet uh, for review. Now, all these various aspects of, changing, uh, of changes in the money market were met by similar aspects in different constituencies. I mentioned already the term auction facility of the Federal Reserve. I could mention that basically uh, the, the Bank of England also introduced a number of measures uh, in mid-December 2007, it expanded the amount of reserves offered at a three-month maturity, uh, and later on uh, it also uh, extended and widened the range of collateral accepted for these additional funds. The, I mentioned the cooperation. On 21st April, the Bank of England introduced a special liquidity scheme to swap high-quality mortgage-backed uh, and other securities for UK Treasury bills, uh, which are provided to the bank by the UK Treasury for this purpose for a given period of time. The purpose of this operation, I take it, was to temporarily exchange illiquid assets of high quality against very liquid securities and thereby stimulate the secured interbank money market. It is worth noticing that uh, these operations can be prolonged. Uh, we don't have long-term operations that go uh, over the time span of several years, but as I said, uh, we have included some of these illiquid assets in our collateral framework up to now. So let me maybe come to a point that is frequently discussed. The developments of the operational framework of our system and that of the Bank of England in my view, show a certain convergence of these operating frameworks worldwide. The same, I think, is true of other central banks. Uh, I think most noticeably all central banks now have responded by not just taking exceptional fine-tuning operations, but lengthening maturities and also accepting a broader range of securities and a broader range of counterparties, as you may know the new facility of the United States for investment banks is doing. Now, from a financial stability implication, you have to look at these measures and take a step back. Also, it is always difficult to draw conclusions from a cross-border comparison. Uh, I think there are some features of our collateral framework that have implications in terms of financial stability, and I would like to briefly go into this. I think, basically, there are a number of issues to a number of, of, of conclusions to be drawn. From today's perspective, I think it was the right decision that we acted promptly and injected additional funds. It re-established confidence. With respect to commu uh, communication, I think it was also right that we made from the start clear that we draw a distinction between the refinancing operation and monetary policy. And we made that again clear yesterday in our communication. We have made monetary policy communication, but at the same time, we continue liquidity operations. We stand ready to continue providing funds to banks in our refinancing operation. Now, there is one issue that is important, and it has to do with a different issue. Uh, basically, 
if you look at the issue of ex-post insurance for risky behavior, which is something that is very frequently discussed in the literature, it is important that when you take interest rate decisions, you focus those interest rate decisions on price stability. Very often during the turmoil, I read that monetary policy decisions by central banks could increase the refinancing cost of banks. Well, so be it. That's not what we focus monetary policy on. Monetary policy is there for price stability. Refinancing operations are there for refinancing banks at cost that reflect the risks. And if the risks in the market go up, uh, we take into account this increase in risks. And there is some discussion on uh, the relationship between refinancing operations and risk that I will go to in a minute because that's also an issue that is discussed. Central banks' flexibility is important in order to suffocate upcoming money market tensions and therefore, in my view, a broad toolbox of monetary policy instruments, counterparties and collateral is in principle preferable to a narrow one. In particular in times of distorted markets. Now, a second issue, and, and this turned out to be very important, in the euro area, all banks have access to refinancing operations, which leads to the process that banks bid for the liquidity they need. The more they need liquidity, the higher the bid they will put in. So we pray, basically, in the refinancing operations, what we're trying to do is price the demand of, for liquidity for a given supply along the demand curve. And this is why a lot of banks put in different offers at different rates for different amounts of liquidity. I think this is just the right way to do it because we say we will provide X liquidity and then we will distribute it to the banks according to the price signals that they give us. And this is a process, in my view, that does not need overhauling in a crisis. It's actually the willingness to pay for liquidity for me at the margin is a good signal of the tension in the market. And this is why we look at these tensions in the market by basically looking at the spreads, the spreads that come out of these operations. Now, one of the, uh, and I don't, don't want to dwell, we can do that in the Q&A, on the differences in the various collaterals we use because this is very often institution-specific. Now, in general, for me, so the, the first point is I think it's important to have a broad set of collateral. A second issue that is important in, in my view is that occasionally it's pointed out that the acceptance of private assets, bank collateral, could create adverse incentive problems and aggravate counterparty risk for the central banks. Counterparties have recently brought forward more than before less liquid collateral to central banks. And this is something that we all notice. The, the data are publicly available. Uh, for the euro system, for example, I can tell you that the annual average share of asset-backed securities pledged as collateral increased from, to 16% in 2007, from 12% in 2006, from 6% in 2004. Now, you can see there is a general tendency of an increase in asset-backed securities as collateral over the pre-crisis years. It's not a crisis phenomenon, it's a general trend. And I think for the euro area, this development may be promoted by the fact that in terms of volume, nearly 60% of the European securitization market is eligible for the euro system collateral purposes. So there is an increasing trend of using this collateral. Uh, as a measure of risk control, the euro system generally refers to market prices and deducts haircuts 
from that value. So when you talk about what are the conditions that we take these asset-backed securities, which some view as less liquid now than they were before, what are the conditions? Well, we look at market prices where trades exist, and we take the actual market price, and from that actual market price, we take a substantial haircut. Now, I have a nice graph here that uh, actually, unfortunately, I didn't prepare graphs for the talk as seeing this nice technical feature here I should have done, but it's quite an impressive graph that some of you may have seen. If you look at the ABX index, uh, which tells you how uh, these types of assets are valued in the market, uh, and you look at various maturities, uh, first year, second year, uh, one year, or rather one-year and two-year-old uh, emissions of triple A down to triple B assets, you can actually see an astonishing fall uh, in the value of some of these assets. It's been most pronounced for triple B. Triple B assets are not eligible for collateral uh, in, uh, in, the, in the euro system. But if you look, for example, at a single A asset that still was trading at roughly par, that is at 100, in 2006, January, the price of that or the valuation of that in the market is now down to just 10. And so when you're concerned with how do central banks deal with these assets, we take the price of that asset to be 10. And then we apply a haircut to these 10 in view of a potential downgrading of this asset over time and let me remind you that in our main refinancing operation, we do that for one week. So this is an issue that has recently surfaced, and I, I, I think central banks should be transparent uh, about their framework uh, when, when they talk about these issues. If a market price is stale, and this is the second issue, if we have a price like that, it's pretty easy for everybody to understand. If the market, however, the market price is stale and not available, the euro system calculates a theoretical price itself. We use a valuation hub for that. Uh, and basically, the submitted collateral all the time is taken at the valued up-to-date price. And there is a second precaution in addition to the haircut that we take. If the daily valued collateral falls below certain levels, the euro system makes a so-called margin call. Basically, we require additional collateral from our counterparty to improve the value of that asset against which we lend, including the haircut. So from a risk management perspective, time-varying haircuts may also mitigate, among other, among other adequate measures, counterparty risks of the central bank. This instrument, I understand, is also in use by the Bank of England for evaluating some of this collateral. It requires central banks' ability to assess the revolvability of the collateral appropriately in the market, and I think for this purpose uh, we all monitor very closely our collateral quality. However, it has to be kept in mind when we talk about these refinancing operations. They are only liquidity operations for a short period of time, a repo operation against securities. They can only mitigate some of the funding tensions in the market. They do not address the fundamental cause of the problem, which is the overhang of illiquid assets in banks' balance sheets due to former credit excesses. 
So it is very important when we make calls on the market that the underlying problem has to be solved by the market players themselves. Now, let me maybe end here. I have a few words, and I think I, I, I've seen a few of the journalists here um, that, that came. I don't want to go too much into the current monetary policy stance of the euro system uh, because it's outside this talk, and um, I've spoken about it yesterday, and I think central bankers do not need to speak about monetary policy every day. It's a medium-term exercise geared at medium-term price stability. So let me conclude my talk here uh, by referring to the sections that you have in the speech. If you feel you want to use them, uh, the non-spoken words, feel them as spoken, but uh, I think I should open now for the audience to have some questions and answers. Thank you for your attention. Do you want me to come there, George? I want to give questions. Could you wait until the microphone is uh, Because uh, we may be able to hear up here, but people behind will not be able to hear what the question is. So could I ask the first question? Yeah. If you could give your name and where you come from. Trevor Greetham at Fidelity International. Um, can you really separate monetary policy decisions from financial stability decisions? Um, it seems to me that it's extremely hard to maintain financial stability in an inflationary downturn. Um, raising interest rates um, in this current environment would only exacerbate the collapse in property prices, particularly if the Federal Reserve were to raise interest rates. And um, I was at the talk yesterday in London with uh, Governor Lacker, mm -hmm. uh, which he referred in, in the way you did to uh, the non-bank bank run. But he said in his view it was a, a fundamental bank run rather than an irrational one because there was a fundamental trigger falling house prices. Um, people often sort of look back at Japan and the fact that property prices collapsed in the 1990s. Uh, they were accused of not cutting rates fast enough to avoid the sort of damage to bank lending. And I just wonder how you see, see the interaction at the moment of this external energy shock um, leading to central banks toughening up a very hawkish stance when collateral values in terms of real estate are already falling. It seems very dangerous. Well, maybe two issues. First, we really try and keep a few things separate. We are in charge of monetary policy for the euro area, not for the United States. Um, Half of your question referred to the economic developments in the United States. Um, I hope you asked Jeff Lacker yesterday about that. So uh, we do keep separate our economies. We're in charge of price stability in the euro area. The euro area is at a different juncture than the U.S. economy. In particular, I think the situation on the housing market is vastly different in the euro area than it is, even so I do not exclude that there are pockets of weakness also in real estate markets in the euro area. Second, on keeping things separate, um, well, in my view, there are two issues. One has to do with refinancing, in particular if you have a broad set of collateral operations, and the other one has to do with the level of interest rates. Uh, money markets need to function at any level of interest rates, and for us, I think it is really 
the important issue to separate, as we come out of the crisis, the monetary policy orientation and the refinancing operation. I think, in particular, if you do not increase the overall amount of liquidity, but you front load uh, the liquidity provision, what we do want to do is to give banks planning security over the maintenance period and potentially over longer horizons. You can particularly see that if you look at our collateral, what I haven't mentioned is what we've shifted was we shifted the relative amount of liquidity we provide in the main refinancing operation at a week's horizon and what we provide at a three-month or six-month horizon. So our lending has become more longer term as we went through the financial crisis. Uh, you can see that in other central banks too. I mean, if you look, for example, if you look at the outright purchases of the Federal Reserve as a special form of long-term lending, uh, what they have also done is they have changed the composition of uh, repo and outright purchases because in the outright purchases, of course, they only conducted those against treasuries, which is highly liquid assets. Uh, and so what they did is basically uh, they focused a lot more on repos and taking illiquid assets uh, into the refinancing operation rather than using the Fed funds window uh, with the very liquid treasuries. I think all central banks reacted in a similar fashion. I do understand the calls from financial institutions that bringing interest rate down, down would help them in terms of refinancing costs, but I think that's exactly the avenue that you as a central bank shouldn't go down. Hello. Uh, yes, I'm Alonzo Jarman from the University of Westminster. I'm interested in... Uh, Asset price inflation, and um, uh, there was the famous speech by uh, Alan Greenspan of irrational exuberance, which was <laughs> made quite an impact. So central bankers can always jawbone when they see asset bubbles. But, you know, should central bankers perhaps pay more attention to asset price bubbles in their, uh, you know, interest rate decision-making process? Well, my view is that the interest rate is much too a blunt weapon to address asset price uh, bubbles. The amount of interest rate increases you would need to deflate an asset bubble could, would go way beyond what is healthy for the economy. Uh, what we should do is not as much focus on bubbles, but basically monitor very closely the role of asset prices in monetary policy transmission and the role of uh, this transmission to the real economy. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, we in the euro system, for example, do not focus on asset prices that much. They're part of our data frame when we do monetary policy analysis. We also look at uh, asset markets, real estate markets in particular. Uh, one of the closest links between asset markets uh, and the real economy and interest rates is actually the real estate market. Uh, much more than, than stock markets or bond markets, there is a very close link, uh, very close link between the level of interest rates uh, and the behavior actually uh, of uh, house prices. And there are a number of areas where the house prices as, a, as an asset price uh, come into the play for monetary policy. For example, when we look at the HICP, the Harmonized Consumer Price Index, or consumer prices in general as the objective, price stability uh, for central banks, uh, there is a big expenditure component of households that, in my view, we do not fully adequately capture in our, uh, in our consumer prices, and that is that we basically value the expenditure of households uh, for real estate at rental equivalents. Now, 
One of the examples that you saw uh, as the housing market in the U.S. was reaching the peak, uh, if everybody buys housing, there is very little demand for rents. So the increase in rents is actually depressed as a relative price effect occurs between the, the, the owner-occupied housing and the, the rental market. So if we only capture uh, the expenditure of households for housing in the rental equivalent, we miss that effect. Now, if we would really take the expenditure compact, uh, co so you buy a house very rarely, maybe only once or twice in your life, and then at the point where you buy it, it's a huge expenditure you, to you, but basically averaged out overall transaction, it may be a key issue to have owner-occupied housing measured at current transaction prices in addition to rental equivalents measured at rents in the market. That would probably lead to the effect that the properly measured expenditure of an average household for a person, which includes either, you know, on average for some part, owner-occupied housing and for others rent, would show that if there is a housing bubble, part of the CPI would go up much stronger. And that would lead to you basically looking at the one market that is very closely related in terms of correlation to interest rates in a much different way, in a sort of more leaning against the wind way, not just in a very asymmetric form that you focus on the housing market once the bubble burst, but it would also lead you to leaning against the buildup of strong increases in house prices at the point in time when the market is actually taken off. So there is a counter-cyclical element that would come into monetary policy if we were to take properly measured consumer prices in terms of expenditure baskets. And there are other areas where we can talk, but it's, if you look at it, it's not actually the asset price. You talked about asset markets. It's a particular market where I think most of the problems we've experienced with bursting bubbles were actually related to real estate. Uh, real estate is one of the markets that I think we should focus more on, and there I would agree with you, measuring it properly could give us a tool to do so. Willem Buiten, LSE, and uh, unlike what CNBC seems to think, that's not the London Stock Exchange, but the London School of Economics. Um, um, the degree to which central banks create moral hazard through their um, repo policies and especially through the collateralized repo policies depends on the extent to which they um, you know, endorse adverse selection through the pricing policies for that moral hazard. You put my mind that is somewhat about uh, those you know, not totally liquid uh, collaterals that are still priced in asset markets because if you take 10 cents on the dollar for the ABX or, or the, on the euro, that, that is fine. The real problem arises in the other area where there is no price and you therefore tell me you use your theoretical model and you set your own prices. Now this is, in principle, this could be good depending on how you set them. It certainly beats the procedure that, that the Fed has in its dealing with the primary dealers, where they let the clearers, acting as agents for the primary dealers, price the illiquid collateral, thus creating a perfect opportunity for passing off rubbish collateral at uh, you know, prime collateral prices. But unless you either publish the models you use to price this illiquid collateral, 
or um, give us the actual prices for specific types of collateral, uh, we will never have full accountability for the extent to which you know, you've done your job. So my question is, will the, the euro system uh, publish either the models they use to price these different kinds of collateral and or preferably both the actual prices used for specific kinds of collateral? Probably there's a lag. There may be some reasons for that so that we can, in due course, have a full accountability of where the taxpayer's money has gone. Thank you. Well, there's, there's two issues to the question you relate. Um, one issue has to do with are there really, you know, that group of illiquid assets that doesn't trade anymore, is that really a big part of our collateral framework, or is it significant at all? Uh, you mentioned, in particular, uh, you referred to asset-backed paper uh, related to mortgage-backed securities in the U.S. market. U.S. collateral is not eligible in our collateral window. So we only have euro area collateral that is eligible in our window. In the euro area for the ABS we have, uh, there is only, I would say, a tiny fraction of assets that are not tradable in markets anymore. Uh, there is some. I, I, I don't doubt that. But the other point that I wanted to make is, you know, I tried to explain that we had several lines of safety uh, vaults built in. One was the haircut. The other one was repricing every, uh, you know, basically at a, at a daily basis. We don't use, uh, by large, much different models than are used in, in financial markets. Uh, at this stage, neither the models nor uh, the, the pricing of, of those assets uh, is explicitly uh, published. But let me mention one additional aspect on, uh, on the collateral framework, which I think is uh, also important. If I look at how we deal with ABS collateral in, in, in the Bundesbank, uh, we have a pool of collateral which the banks pledge at an international uh, CSD. Now, usually, and you look at uh, the period, only 20% of that collateral pool that is pledged to the central bank is actually used in refinancing operations. So there is a huge margin in that pool of unused collateral that is simply there as a kind of safety measure uh, if banks face the problem of maybe having to go to the standing facilities. If, so it's, it, there is also a precautionary planning on the sides of banks uh, where they pledge some collateral against the adverse effect that they may end up at the end of the day of not having, having collateral and then go to the central bank. In that point in time, you cannot pledge collateral because the market is usually closed when that happens, so they pledge a safety amount of assets there. I think that uh, the issue you mentioned uh, is a non-issue for the euro area. Publishing the models, you're, you're right. Uh, the, uh, we can ask for a lot more transparency. Uh, you have a long history of asking for additional transparency. We could publish, yes, minutes, uh, whatever. So we add that to the list. Uh, it's Jonathan Hoffman, Brighton Rock. Um, Professor Weber, you talked about um, time-varying haircuts. Um, isn't there a risk with the way that it's being operated at the moment that it's a, a pro-cyclical device? Um, and shouldn't we be considering things like um, capital adequacy ratios geared towards the rate of increase of 
banks' liabilities as a more kind of counter-cyclical element. And the, the other point is on <coughs> the relationship between central bank monetary operations and central bank and banking supervision. I mean, here, I think just over 10 years ago, the government took the decision to separate the two, and a number of people were very critical of that at the time. And events, I think, have certainly probably, probably vindicated that criticism. Uh, what, what's the ideal model for separation between supervision and monetary policy, and um, do you think we've got it right at the moment? Well, that's up to UK authorities to decide. I, I would not come to London and give advice on, on how you solve uh, domestic issues. I'm in charge of monetary policy in the euro area and of refinancing of German banks. Uh, let, me, let me answer your question in a different way. Uh, the first is I think we in Germany have made good experience with the fact that uh, there is a close cooperation between uh, uh, BaFin, which is an FSA-type institution, it's a regulator, and the central bank. And uh, this is something that, uh, you know, of course, uh, if two institutions are in charge uh, of an overlapping field of responsibilities, there is always the issue, how can you clearly separate the two responsibilities and avoid overlaps. So that's an ongoing discussion we had, but I think we, we came to a pretty good compromise uh, at uh, the start of this year. But in general, I think it is very important uh, that if the two cooperate, that they cooperate closely and that this cooperation functions. And our experience was that we do have different roles. Uh, and when it comes to a financial crisis, uh, it is very important to make the distinction, for example, between the central bank, which can provide liquidity to an institution in need that has to be solvent, and the passing of the judgment of given uh, that institution's exposure, whether that institution is solvent or not. And it goes back to the uh, issue that Professor Beuter uh, basically mentioned. Somebody has to pass the judgment whether lending occurs to a solvent institution or to an insolvent institution. And in our framework, we can only lend to solvent institutions. So it is very important that you don't blur these two responsibilities. Uh, but at the same time, it is very important if you've separated these responsibilities to have very close and ongoing close contact between the two institutions. And I think in any system where you have chosen, uh, and, and there are good arguments for separating these issues, in particular if the central bank is in charge of monetary policy, uh, there is an issue of actually also, for the same reason that I talked about before, separating the financial stability uh, department uh, with Chinese walls from the monetary policy department. Uh, there is a good, there, there is a good uh, reason for doing these things, but at the same time, when, when the crisis comes, you get, it's very important you have a joint and discussed multifocus on the bank. For example, if a bank has a problem, we can see it early because they increase the collateral use from the central bank. They basically pledge almost all the assets they have with the central bank. Now, you may not see, as a regulator that doesn't go into this bank daily, that a situation is emerging that uh, signals that this bank may have problems in funding in the market. Usually that information is provided by other market participants to the regulator. 
But if you're a central bank that does the refinancing, you get indications of that. And if you see, for example, there is a tight use of collateral and uh, a, a strong bidding for collateral from an institution, you may want to send your regulators there and ask them what is the special reason for this particular behavior over recent periods. So I think it's important uh, to, to look at the bank from various dimensions uh, and to bring that information together, in particular in a financial crisis. And my view is uh, if you have two institutions in charge, the key thing is separating clearly the responsibilities and assigning clear responsibilities to the parties involved so they both have a clear objective function, at the same time fostering and improving to a maximum amount the flow of information between the two players. Thank you. Um, Michael Howell from Cross Border. Um, so you, you, you make the point that this is a very unusual financial crisis, which in, indeed it is. It's something we haven't seen in the West in, in the sort of the post-war period. But it's very, it's very usual in emerging markets, and it was very usual in the 19th century. It's a typical refinancing crisis that one normally gets if banks don't provide or sound banks don't provide a lot of the, the, the lending, and you have to go outside to capital markets or flaky banks. Now, my, my question is that the resolution of those crises typically in the past and in emerging markets was not lowering interest rates and controlling money. It was actually doing the reverse. It was hiking interest rates and actually increasing the amount of liquidity in the system. And what I would suggest is maybe the solution that a lot of bankers are taking is a typical solution to a sort of post-war post world where the banks dominated, where you had to cut their costs and control money. And what we should be doing now is actually raising interest rates and increasing liquidity significantly. And I suppose the corollary is to ask you, do you think the crisis is now over? Well, that's a tough call. We, I wouldn't uh, at this point move into this, this uh, judgment because you can also ask, uh, are we closer to the start and closer to the end? Uh, I think what we see is financial markets are still tense. Uh, every set of new bad information can actually send new tensions through the market and uh, financial institutions are still in a fragile situation. They have not fully uh, recovered uh, from uh, the write-offs uh, that we've seen uh, in the first quarter and uh, over the last year. So I would say markets are still tense. And we see that if there is some repercussion about single institutions, we immediately see new tensions in the money market and in many other segments. There is also the issue that I think we probably, in terms of the asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities and structured finance, we have most of the tensions and the workout behind us. I think that. But, on the other hand, there are other market segments that could be influenced uh, if this tension spreads to these segments. We talked about the uh, real estate market in the United States. We haven't really talked about uh, the difference between private and commercial real estates. Now, commercial real estates is also going through some tension. We had some debate about monoliners. There is some discussion that now it's not just investment banks and the core financial institutions, but also uh, regional banks that, due to the cyclical position of the United States being different than it was a year ago, find uh, that uh, they also uh, are witnessing uh, some, uh, some challenges. So, for me, I think it is not an issue that central banks usually deal with. I don't worry a single day whether we're through the crisis or whether we're in the middle of it. I deal with the crisis as it comes because that is our job as central banks and we should not kid ourselves into a false sense of security. We have to deal with problems as they emerge uh, and I do not work on the assumption uh, that no more problems will emerge. 
uh, in financial markets. I think we regularly see that financial markets go through periods of strain like this. So uh, on, on the, on the uh, issue of what we should do with rates, I said before, uh, we focus with rates on, on price stability. But you have one point I said that I would share. Financial markets are now no longer just characterized by the players, i.e. banks. Uh, we have actually seen a lot of disintermediation. We've seen actually capital markets and the dominance of capital markets move up. Uh, we see that in Europe too. Uh, the U.S. and the U.K. used to be a capital market-dominated system where the European continental system was more bank-dominated. I think what we've seen in recent years is the emergence of a hybrid structure. We still have banks in a key position because in Europe, unlike in the U.S. or in the U.K., the main access to the capital market – both for, in, for, for, for firms but also for individuals, is through banks. So banks have a facilitating role in terms of capital market access. It's now more of a hybrid model uh, that is there. And we actually uh, also see, when you talk about refinancing costs for banks, uh, the issue of liquidity that was at the core of the recent stress has, less banks, has led banks to adopt very diverse strategies in terms of getting access to liquidity. Backup liquidity is a key issue, and you can get liquidity by being attractive in terms of deposits. You can get liquidity by moving into different market segments. So I think what banks have adopted is very diverse strategies in order uh, to have a broader access uh, to, uh, to liquidity, and not just central bank liquidity or market liquidity, but other forms of liquidity. Uh, so I think they now have much more diverse uh, business strategies than they used to. Charles, if I may add one more word on uh, something a gentleman asked before. On, I didn't answer the procyclicality of the haircuts. There are a number of issues that I think we need to address in terms of pro-cyclicality uh, of the current financial system, and this is something that in particular the Baal Committee is dealing with. We have talked very briefly or indicated at the pro-cyclicality or the cyclical uh, effects of accounting standards. There are many other issues uh, that we need to focus on. I think credit business in itself is a cyclical business. We cannot do away with that underlying uh, financial market characteristic, but we can try and mitigate where possible the, cyclical, the cyclicality of regulatory uh, provisions that we put on top of the available cyclicality for financial markets. And I think this is a real challenge and we need to address it, both in the BALD standards and the FSF is also looking into that. My name is Amy Schmidt. I'm with the International Accounting Standards Board. In your role as a preeminent economist, I'm interested in your thoughts on the fair value option. What role, if any, do you believe mark-to-market accounting has played in exacerbating the credit crisis? Well, Charles, how long do we have? <laughs> That's not a question you can answer in, uh, in a very short period of time. Well, let, let me put it like this. Um, I think there are certain features in the international accounting standards, uh, fair value option, that uh, are actually uh, adding to procyclicality. Uh, what we need to do is to think about how we can, as I said before, how we can go forward and make the regulatory and the accounting framework less procyclical. Uh, and this is in particular 
uh, something that we've discussed uh, a lot, and there is a big difference between, uh, for example, U.S. GAAP and IASB on that side. One of the things that I find uh, not very comforting is when I hear from our banks that basically because the fair value option on the U.S. GAAP is applied both of the asset to the assets and the liability side of banks' balance sheets, whilst uh, in uh, IASB, uh, basically through prudential filters, it is only applied to the asset side of the balance sheet and to a large extent not, except for some exceptions, uh, to the liability side of a bank's balance sheet. That is, I think, a very important regulatory difference between uh, two major economic areas uh, that I think uh, we should seriously examine because I don't think it is helpful. Uh, it makes uh, total – it makes accounting of financial institutions on both sides of the Atlantic not fully compatible. And when we call as regulators for transparency, transparency means you have to have the same standards on both sides. Uh, if you want to compare accounts, the method has to be the same. Now, if we apply different standards – uh, and they have such different implications, uh, for example, uh, for fair value accounts, I don't think it is very helpful, so we need to revisit some of these options in both of the standards. And I think preferable we would converge on a similar accounting exercise and provision in both of these standards. You have all seen tonight by very obvious skills and uh, we're delighted that you have the central position that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charles. Thank you.